Thank you, Will Cooper and those who participated. This morning we are continuing on in our series in the Gospel of Luke. So we're in Luke chapter 9, a very familiar story, the Jesus feeding the 5,000. And that begins on verse, at verse 10. So Luke 9, 10. And then we also want to read from John chapter 6. So if you're not using a Bible, um, sometimes it's good just to sit and listen. But today would be one of those Sundays to have a Bible in front of you. Uh, so there's a blue Bible uh, in front of you in Luke is 8.66 and John 6 is 8.91. So Luke 9, John 6. Let's stand together as I read God's word. Luke 9.10. On the disciples' return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done. And Jesus took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And the crowds learned it, and they followed him and welcomed them, and, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear on, and the twelve came and said to Jesus, send the crowd away. Send the crowd away to go into a surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go out and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and all, had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. John chapter 6, beginning with verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and is now, sorry, that's John chapter 5. Some of you are like, wow, it's got a different Bible. <laughs> this, is at, this is the day after the feeding of the 5,000. When they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life for which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to Jesus, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who has sent me. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to Jesus, sir, give us this bread always. 
And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You may be seated, and let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. The best part of a visit to the ophthalmologist, that's the eye doctor for some of you all, is the refractor. Don't you love the refractor? I love the refractor. You know what it is? It's that little gizmo they put in front of your eyes, and the ophthalmologist slips those little lens through, and they say, do you like it this way or that way? And he gives you a little test on knowing your alphabet. And he, he flips the lens, and the lens, it helps you focus on the alphabet. It changes the angle of the light, and that angle helps you see better. I always wanted one of those at my house just because of the cool sound that they made. <laughs> the refractor brings fuzzy images into focus. The Gospel of Luke is like a refractor. Turn back with me, if you don't mind, to Luke chapter 1. You can see the purpose of the writing. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. To, to flip the lens so you could see, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So the Gospel of Luke is like a refractor. Luke is saying, I've seen something, and I want, I want to dial it in so you can see clearly. So you can see Jesus clearly and make a decision about him, so you can see yourself clearly, so you understand who you are or maybe who you're not. You could also say that throughout the gospel of Luke, Jesus uses events like lenses. Each event, as you went from chapter eight to chapter nine, each story is like a new lens that Jesus pulls out and he uses to say, here's something about me, or here's something about you that you haven't seen before. And I'd like for you to see it. He's bringing himself into greater focus and in this event, he's saying, look at, look at me. Do you really see me? See, the disciples have probably been following Jesus for the better part of a year. 
And he wants to make sure they really see who he really is. And he also wants to make sure that they really see who they really are. You're supposed to notice the bookends of this event. In John chapter 9, you see the story just before this, Herod, verse 7. Now, Herod is the tetrarch, about, and, and he's heard about what's happening with Jesus. He's perplexed because some people said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. So Herod was the ruler. He had put John the Baptist to death. He had seen John the Baptist's head separated from his body. John I beheaded, verse 9, but who is this? You're supposed to underline that. Who is this? Who is this? And then that's a spotlight onto this event, the feeding of the 5,000. Now notice right after, verse 18, same chapter. Now it happened as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked him, what do the crowds say? Who do the crowds say that I am? See, same question. Then he's going to turn to the disciples. Who do you say that I am? It's the same question like bookends. And they're like spotlights to say the answer to who is this is this right here, the feeding of the 5,000. You're going to get the answer to these same questions in this one particular event. So the first thing I want to do is set the scene and then flip through five lenses to help us see Jesus and to help us see ourselves. First of all, we just have two groups, the disciples and the crowd. Verse 9, chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So Jesus had had been with his disciples, and he's saying, hey, now it's your turn to go proclaim the kingdom of God, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grant you authority and power to heal people. So they pay attention to the words that you're saying, and they had just gotten back from their first missionary journey. Verse 10, on their return, the apostles told him all that they'd done. Now, we don't know if they'd been gone a, a month or a week or who long, how no, but they all came back at one place where they knew they were going to meet Jesus at Capernaum, his adult hometown, and they're saying, gosh, tell us your stories. And you can imagine all 12 of these guys coming back two by two saying all the things they, they got to see. Jesus is the one who suggests that they take some time away to rest and reflect. And so they all pile into a boat and they sa sail four miles east to a desolate place near a town called Bethsaida. Perhaps another reason the Jesus took the disciples out of the immediate area was the growing tension. Herod was now looking for Jesus. Maybe to behead Jesus as well. So Jesus is taking his disciples away saying, let's, let's get outside of this pressure cooker that we're in. Let's, let's get away for some rest and reflection on what you've been involved with. And let's go to this desolate place. The crowd, the second part of the scene. The disciples' mission had apparently whet the appetite for the people in the surrounding area. So now they've heard about Jesus, but they know Jesus is in Capernaum. So they're, they're collapsing on Capernaum to come and see Jesus. No doubt some in the crowd were stirred up by the beheading of John the Baptist. 
These are people who are sick and tired of the oppression of the Roman government. And what these people had done and what Jesus can do, apparently this is the king. This is the person who's going to finally overthrow the government. And they're ripe for revolution. They're hungry for power. And they all come flooding into Capernaum, this little village, and somebody gets notice, hey, they've set sail. Well, where did it look like they were going? Well, it looked like they were going east, sort of near Bethsaida. So, so the group, the few hundred that come to Capernaum, they decide we'll just walk around. It's four miles if you sail, it's eight miles if you walk. So this little crowd at Capernaum starts walking around, and as they go around, they come to little villages. These, these are anti-establishment, solidly Jewish, conservative people who are sick and tired of Herod. And they hear there might be a new king on the horizon, so they gather steam. And when they finally reach the other side, it's not just a few hundred, it's 5,000 men. And most commentators would say fifteen to 20,000 people. So you, you just want to have in your mind, this isn't a VBS picnic. <laughs> Everybody on a nice field with their blanket and their puppy dog, and that's not what it is. It's a powerful political rally. Just, just think about our elections where somebody stands up and comes into the stadium and 20,000 people are cheering at that person's arrival. It's much more like that. We're, we're finally here. This is the person. And when Jesus shows up, he's going to be the new king. He's the person who's going to overthrow the government. He's the one who's going to restore us to power. And you know that's what they're thinking because in John chapter 6, he says this, when the people saw the sign that he had done, this is the feeding of the 5,000, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving, this is Jesus, perceiving that they were about to come and take Jesus by force and make him king. You feel that? We don't care what this guy wants. We know what we want, and we're going to force him to be the king. And of course, most people who had that kind of platform would be happy to be the king of these people. But notice Jesus withdraws. That's the scene. Now, now let's just flip five little lenses to see Jesus, to see ourselves. First, let's just see Jesus's attitude. Imagine getting in a boat longing for a desolate vacation. You ever been that, in that position? I don't want to see anybody I know. I hope I don't talk to a human for three weeks. I mean, you know, just that you have that feeling. I don't, of course, as a pastor of a church, but you might have had that feeling before. And you just can't wait to just totally unwind. And when you get there, there's 20,000 people to greet you. How would you react to that? Luke says Jesus welcomed them, which is fine. But I really like the way Mark says it. Because all of, all of the, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle in all the gospels. It's such a powerful picture Mark says this, Jesus saw the crowd and had compassion. 
because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I've said this before, but this is one of my favorite Greek words, compassion. Fourteen letters. And I'm not going to say it right, but it doesn't, know, it doesn't matter because you don't know how to say it either. <laughs> Splodgizomai. I mean, it's just fun to say. Because if you spit while you're saying it, you're supposed to. Splodgizomai. It just sounds like that kind of word. Jesus had splodgizomai for them. And what, the way it is, it's, it's a feeling from the gut. It's not like, ah, it's too bad that's, that, that's the way that it's... No, it's, I have a, a gut reaction to this. This is a visceral sort of soul-wrenching reaction. I see these people, and they're like sheep without a shepherd. I, I have this gut reaction. I have compassion. So the first, my first step towards them is compassion. These people are completely lost... They have a 180 degree, a degree difference on what they think Jesus is going to be about. They're completely out of tune with Jesus, the real Jesus. But that Jesus comes towards that person who's totally blind with splodgizomai. If Jesus were to encounter you today one-on-one, -on -one, what emotion would he be carrying toward you? I wonder if you think it's compassion. Or do you think it's first correction? The first lens, it's very critical to see Jesus' attitude, comes from the gut. Have compassion on these lost people who can't see themselves and they can't even see, see me. I'm not angry with them. Second lens, Jesus is a king and he is arming people for a revolution. And he's using this moment to arm his soldiers. He's a king, he's leading a revolution. In fact, he's come to inaugurate a complete takeover. Jesus has a good start here. He's got 5,000 men. He's got 20,000 people. This is a pretty good political rally, especially in this area. And yet when Jesus shows up the, at the rally, the arms that he's distributing are not like the worldly arms. They're not clubs. They're not slings. They're not stones. All signs of earthly power. Jesus has compassion. He steps out of the boat. And what does he begin to arm the people with? What does it say? Teaching them about the word of God. Teaching them the kingdom of God. The arming that Jesus is doing for his followers is his word. See, Jesus understands that he's not trying to take back Israel. Jesus isn't trying to take back America. Jesus is trying to do something so much bigger. He's trying to take back the gates of hell. He's trying to scale the wall of a dark human heart. And clubs and swords aren't going to do it. What's going to do it is the word of God. This is the armament for Jesus. This is the armament for his followers. The weapon that gets to the human soul 
is the word of God. You know this, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates, it divides the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This is why so many of you say, Paul, I just felt like you were speaking right to me today. Why? Because it's the word of God. It's the power of the word of God. Ephesians 6, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you can take your stand. Take up the sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God. So if you and I are going to be a part of the Jesus revolution, if we're going to help pierce human souls, we're going to have to know the word of God. It's not going to come in any other form or any other fashion. third little lens I want to click over here to help us see is the impossible assignment. Verse 12, the sun begins to set. You get the sense of the exhaustion, don't you? All 12 disciples come to Jesus and what do they say? Send these people away. I mean, I'm tired. They had been on the missionary journey. They get, uh, they get a four-mile boat ride, however long that takes. And now they have this all-day lecture with Jesus. And all these needs from the 20,000 people send them away. We, we can't help these people anymore. And Jesus decides to use this moment to really focus the disciples' attention. He asked them to do something impossible. Um, verse 13, you give them something to eat. God loves calling people to impossible assignments. This is his favorite thing to do. And notice the disciples' first inclination is probably your first inclination. It's my first inclination. As soon as you get called to do an impossible assignment, the very first thing you do is you look at yourself. I mean, what? Look what I have. I don't, I don't have enough. That's the very first inclination. And Jesus wants his first century disciples, his 21st century disciples to see something very clearly. And I want to say it clearly. If you're a disciple, until you see, this is Jesus speaking, until you see that what I'm calling you to do is impossible for you, then you're never going to be qualified to do it. Until you see that what I'm calling you to do is impossible for you to do. You're never going to be qualified to do it. A lens has to click to say, yes, I have gifts and I have talents, but really what God is calling me to do, it's an impossible task. And I can't look within for resources. I'm going to have to look to him for resources. And that's a lens that has to really come into focus and Jesus is using this moment to make that perfectly clear. So he takes up the bread and says, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, the King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And then every disciple comes up to him and gets some, some fish and some bread. And 20,000 people are in little circles of 50. And these 12 disciples come up they get some food in a basket, I'm assuming. 
because they have the basket at the end. They go out and they feed however many it is, 50 or 100, and then they come back. Think of like a giant circulatory system. Think about the object lesson for every disciple. I get the bread and the fish, I go out, I distribute, and what must I do? I must go back to Jesus to get some more and then go back out. It's not a one-time. It's going out and feeding and coming back. It's going out and feeding and coming back. It's this circulatory system that Jesus is saying, hey, disciples, it's all about me. It's not about you. Let's make sure that's perfectly clear. All of this is by design because it's not an accident that this object lesson comes at the heels of the disciples' first missionary journey. Try to just imagine for a moment, Jesus has given you his authority. Have you ever thought about that? You can cast out demons. You can heal people. And you go out to these little small villages and you do proclaim the word of God, but you touch people and they're healed. Can you imagine the rush of adrenaline that would have for you? The little taste of power that you would never want to give back. See, it's not an accident that this happens right here. They all have stories to tell. And Jesus wants to use this moment to remind the disciples, the story, guys, is not about you. It's about me. Jim Rayburn, some of you would know his name. He's the founder of Young Life that I was on staff for for 15 years here in New Hanover County. He started Young Life in 1941. He gave his final address in 1970, the year that he died, in California to an all-staff conference. So here he is, 29 years later. He's dying, and he gives this long address, and this is how he comes to a close. Jesus Christ... That's not just what young life's all about. That's all that young life's all about. Jesus Christ. See, Jim gets it. It's all about Jesus Christ. It wasn't about Jim, the founder. It's not about these talented staff that are here in this meeting. It's about Jesus. And you would think... Is this a necessary reminder for the disciples? They've been with Jesus. Why do they need this necessary reminder that it's all about Jesus? The answer to that is in the same chapter, and this is such a sad thing to point out to you. Chapter 9, verse 46. An argument arose among the disciples as to which one of them was the greatest. They've just been they've just been in the presence of God in this circulatory system. And whether it's a day later or a week later, they want power. See, when your focus gets off of Jesus, it turns into politics. And politics is about who's in control 
And who's in control is about who has power. So in a very short period of time, these people, these 12 men who were right next to Jesus, turned their attention, can you imagine, away from Jesus to politics and hoping to get an answer there. Can you imagine people doing that? See, one clear sign that the church has lost its focus on Jesus is when it turns to politics for power. So do you you see Jesus? It's very possible to be in the inside circle and not see him or not see him clearly. So Jesus is flipping this lens to say, I need you guys to see something very clearly because when I leave, I'm not talking about political takeover. God loves giving impossible assignments because it helps us remember that it's all about Jesus. And just reflecting on this, mostly around Founders Day, I was thinking about these two impossible assignments for me. In 1986, I was 23 years old, and I lived in Myrtle Beach in a trailer park, and my trailer was 10 feet wide and 60 feet long. I couldn't say exactly where my Bible was. I didn't attend church. I had zero ministry experience. I was a pro at serving up the large fried seafood platter. I was great at that because I did that every night of the week in Myrtle Beach. And in that little trailer in the summer of 1986, Jesus called and said, Paul, follow me. Follow me into full-time ministry. And I remember standing in that little hot box of mine saying, this is impossible. I'm not, I mean, I'm in no way qualified I don't have a church membership. I haven't been attending church. I don't know where my Bible is. I have no experience. And it was like Jesus saying, that's what I want. Somebody who doesn't think they can do it. Because the people that think they can do it, they get in the way. So I've got to start with people who don't think they can do it. And you're the perfect candidate because, Paul, you definitely can't do it. 20 years ago, never having preached a single Sunday morning service, I followed God out of young life into this pulpit. And I remember that first morning waking up March 2002, wanting to throw up. You ever been in that place? Like the day ahead, you're like, I'm going to throw up just thinking about it. And I remember thinking, I'm going to be the founding pastor of a church, and I've never delivered a single sermon. That's impossible. I mean, that is impossible. But see, my my first inclination was to look at myself and say, I don't have the resources. And then God whispering in my ear in the way that he does, yeah, because I'm the resource. And you have me. And that's all you need. 
Yet don't you know, even the impossible in the impossible assignments, the longer you do them, it is, it's the easier it is to think, I guess I can do it on my own now. So my nervous prayer is that Jesus keeps putting us in impossible situations. That's a nervous prayer. So that everybody who comes to Christ Community Church or has a touch point with some of our ministries, they would say, hey, it's about Jesus for them. It's not about them. As a church, if we only respond to assignments we think are within our power, then we could miss the real revolution. The fourth lens, John chapter 6, verse 26, what I'm going to call defective enthusiasm. Let's read that together. John 6, 26. This is the next day again after the, the uh, feeding of the 5,000. Jesus, they, they found him on the other side. He'd gone back over. Jesus, they say, when do you come here? Truly, truly, I say you're not seeking me, not because you saw the sign, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. The defect was that the people saw the sign and connected the sign to themselves rather than to Jesus. Jesus had multiplied one boy's lunch for 20,000 people, and when they saw it, they defectively concluded, well, here's a man who heals people when they're hungry. Here's a man, who, or when they're sick, here's a man who feeds people when they're hungry. Well, let's, we've got to make him king so he can give us everything we want. Do you see the defect? The signs for them don't point to the Savior. The signs point to themselves. Look at Jesus and everything he can do for me. It's, see, it's all about me. The signs are pointing in the wrong direction. And the proof is in this verse, you're not seeking me because you saw the sign. You're not even seeking me. You're seeking me because you, you had your fill of your loaves. In other words, you got hungry again. And you wanted to use me to satisfy your appetites. They see the sign and they make themselves the destination. They don't want to worship Jesus. They want to use Jesus. All kinds of people want to take Jesus and make him king by force. Into the king they want him to be. It's like Jesus is going to be the best supporting actor in their drama. Do, do you see Jesus? Do you see yourself here? John Piper, Jesus didn't come into the world to lend power to already existing appetites. That's the fundamental mistake of the prosperity gospel. They leave the people untransformed in what they crave and simply add the power of Jesus as a way to satisfy their cravings. That's not the gospel. Instead, it's a kind of defective enthusiasm for Jesus, and that enthusiasm he walks away from. So many of us here, including myself here, we would say we enthusiastically follow Jesus. 
My question is, is there anything defective in your enthusiasm? Is it possible that you could be using Jesus to just be the best supporting actor in your drama? Is that possible? Instead of him using you in his eternal unfolding drama. One, one final lens. I wish we had time to connect the symbolism of Jesus' statement, I am the bread of life to Moses and manna from heaven. But instead, I just want to focus in Luke chapter 9, verse 16, on one single act here. And taking the five loaves, he looked up to heaven, he said a blessing, and then this is what I want you to circle, he broke the loaves. It's the same language in Luke 22 at the Last Supper. Jesus took the bread, and when he gave it, he gave thanks, he broke it. Saying, what? This is my body. Now, I want you to listen carefully, even if you're tired and you're thinking, I think you should have ended on four points. (laughs) In order for everyone to enjoy the bread of Christ, just like any other bread, what must happen to Jesus? He must be torn. That's why it's the symbol. In order for him to feed all of humanity, he must be torn. He couldn't stay whole, so to speak. Just like if you're sitting at your table and somebody brings out a fresh loaf of bread, in order for everybody to get a slice, somebody has to cut into it. Somebody has to tear something away in order for everyone to enjoy. Question What will be required of those who choose to follow Jesus? Answer carefully. What will be required of those if Jesus is the bread of life and we are now following after him and he was broken into pieces? What must be required of us? Thankfully, you don't have to take my word for it. 9.23 And Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up, take up his cross. Notice, it's not something you endure, it's something you take up. Jesus wasn't a a victim, he was a volunteer. So as a Christ follower, I'm not just enduring something. I'm taking it up. I'm sacrificing things that I might otherwise want. I'm getting in the way of problems. I'm exuding compassion in people who would otherwise not understand me or what I'm doing. I'm taking something up because the real Jesus has taken up me. And now I have to be torn. That's God's economy in order to feed other people. I cannot stay whole. I cannot get everything I want. 
I have to let go of things in order for others to see Jesus. Now, I want you to imagine with me these 12 disciples. At the end of the passage, one final object lesson, Jesus says, hey, if there's any scraps, go out and collect them in the, this group of 20,000, right? So he gets, they all have a basket, and they all come back with a basket full of torn pieces of bread. And not here, but pretty soon, Jesus is going to ask his disciples, are you willing to be torn too? All of these are young men, average age under 20. Andrew held a basket. He was crucified in an X-shaped cross. Nathaniel, he held a basket. He was skinned alive and crucified. James, the brother of John, he held a basket. He was beheaded. John held a basket. He was dipped into boiling oil. Jude, he held a basket. He was beaten with a club, then crucified. Matthew held a basket. He was staked and speared to the ground. Jesus held, Peter held a basket. He was crucified upside down. Philip held a basket and he was impaled by iron hooks in his ankles and hung upside down. Thomas held a basket and he was thrust through by a spear. James held a basket. He was stoned to death. And Simon, the zealot, held a basket. And he was sawn in half. So do you see Jesus clearly? Do you see what he's looking for? from his followers. Are you ready for an impossible assignment? What that will mean for everyone who follows is you will be torn. Do you see Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, this is so hard for us to see. We are no better than your disciples to hear a sermon like this and the next day argue about political power. To reason in our minds, well, I know we have to be torn, it's just that I can't, we don't have to give up that, right? We're just always bargaining, using you instead of worshiping. And I pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to envelop my soul 
and everyone here, everyone hearing this sermon, to, to ask them the question, do you really see? Are you really following the real Jesus or a king of your own making who's a supporting actor in your drama? Lord, these are difficult questions. I pray that you would use your word to get to the soul to help us see and then give us faith to follow. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.